Peace be upon you. One of the most contentious debates among Quranists, these are individuals who follow only the Quran and discard the Hadith and Sunnah, is what is the Salat and how does one perform it? This may seem like a strange point of contention outside of Quranic circles, as the answer to this question to many Muslims seems obvious. But there are a lot of Quranists who either claim that the Salat is not a ritual prayer, but instead just a means to follow closely based on an erroneous translation of the word Salat, or others who believe that the Salat is a ritual prayer, but then much debate to how it is to be performed. This debate becomes particularly critical because the Salat is such a pivotal aspect of the religion that it is described as a characteristic of the righteous in many verses throughout the Quran. But most notably, just 10 verses into the Quran, in the third verse of Surah 2, we see this commandment given to the believers. It reads, in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, Alif Lam Mim, this scripture is infallible, a beacon for the righteous who believe in the unseen, observe the contact prayers, Salat, and from our provisions to them they give to charity. So we see that immediately in the opening verses of the Quran, the importance of the Salat is called out, and therefore this should be something that all believers should hope to get right. But with all this debate, how do we know the right answer to this question of what is the Salat and how do we perform it? To get this answer, it helps to understand the title of Surah 2. The title of the second surah of the Quran is the Hefer, or in Arabic, Al-Baqarah, which can also be translated more simply as the cow. It is not only the second surah of the Quran immediately after the opening surah of the Ki Al-Fatiha, but it is also the longest surah in the Quran. And out of all the possible names for this crucial surah that discusses so many aspects of the religion and the duties for the followers of the Quran, God selected the simple name, the Hefer, as the title. To understand the importance of this name, it helps to understand the backstory of the Hefer as described in the verses of the surah. It starts from Surah 2, verse 67, where it reads, Moses said to his people, God commands you to sacrifice a heifer, a cow. They said, are you mocking us? He said, God forbid I should behave like the ignorant ones. They said, call upon your Lord to show us which one. He said, he says that she is a heifer that is neither too old nor too young of an intermediate age. Now carry out what you are commanded to do. They said, call upon your Lord to show us her color. He said that she is a yellow heifer, bright colored, pleases the beholders. They said, call upon your Lord to show us which one. The heifers look alike to us, and God willing, we will be guided. He said, he says that she is a heifer that was never humiliated in plowing the land or watering the crops, free from any blemish. They said, now you have brought the truth. They finally sacrificed her after this lengthy reluctance. So from these verses, we see that God inspired Moses to command the children of Israel 
to carry out a very simple task, to sacrifice a heifer. What is the lesson we are to gain from this? Before we address the valuable nature of this lesson that God selected, this to be the title of the second surah, the longest surah in the Quran, let's ask two simple questions. Is God all-knowing? And does God forget or make mistakes? So is God all-knowing and does God forget or make mistakes? The obvious answer to these questions is unequivocally that yes, God is all-knowing. God is omniscient. And no, God does not make mistakes or forgets. That said, then why did the children of Israel pose all these questions when Moses gave them such a direct commandment directly from God to carry out an act and sacrifice a heifer. They asked, are you mocking us? They asked, which one? They said, what color? And again, they asked, which one? What was the motivation for asking such questions? Either they thought that God was not all-knowing, or they thought that God forgot or made a mistake to provide them the details that they requested. God knows them better than they know themselves. When God gave them the simple commandment to sacrifice a heifer, their immediate response should have been, we hear and we obey. And they should have followed through with the act to the best of their ability. But instead, they became exposed as reluctant believers. They came up with excuses. And this becomes clearly obvious in Surah 2 verse 71 when it's stated, they finally sacrificed her after this lengthy reluctance. And if we look at the Arabic, it says, Wama and not kadu, they almost, yafalun, they would do it. That they almost did not do this act. So they're simply showing that the reasons they're asking these questions and playing dumb was not because they did not understand who God was, but it was because they did not want to carry out the act and therefore thought if they asked these questions, they could get away from doing the tasks that they were commanded to do by God. As believers in God, we strive to do God's bidding, to do the things that God commands us to do, to grow and develop our souls. But this reluctant nature of lazy workers is nothing new and still a common practice from people even in modern times and nothing unique to the children of Israel at the time of Moses. In 1899, Albert Hubbard wrote an essay entitled A Message to Garcia, where he describes this very scenario. It reads, When war broke out between Spain and the United States, it was very necessary to communicate quickly with the leader of the insurgents. Garcia was somewhere in the mountain fastness of Cuba. No one knew where, no mail or telegraph could reach him. The president must secure his cooperation and quickly. What to do? Someone said to the president, There's a fellow by the name of Rowan. We'll find Garcia for you if anybody can. Rowan was sent for and given a letter to be delivered to Garcia. How? The fellow by the name of Rowan took the letter, sealed it up in an oilskin pouch, strapped it over his heart, and in four days landed by night off the coast of Cuba from an open boat, disappeared into the jungle, 
and in three weeks came out on the other side of the island, having traversed a hostile country on foot and having delivered his letter to Garcia are things I have no special desire now to tell in detail. The point I wish to make is this. McKinley gave Rowan a letter to be delivered to Garcia. Rowan took the letter and did not ask, where is he at? By the eternal, there is a man whose form should be cast in deathless bronze, in the statue placed in every college in the land. It is not book learning young men need, nor instruction about this or that, but a stiffening of the vertebrae which will cause them to be loyal to a trust, to act promptly, concentrate their energies, do the thing, carry a message to Garcia. General Garcia is dead now, but there are other Garcias. No man who has endeavored to carry out an enterprise where many hands were needed, but has been well nigh appalled at times by the imbecility of the average man, the inability or unwillingness to concentrate on a thing and to do it. Slipshod assistance, foolish inattention, dowdy indifference, and half-hearted work seem the rule, and no man succeeds unless by hook or crook or threat he forces or bribes other men to assist him, or mayhap God in his goodness performs a miracle and sends him an angel of light for an assistant. So I just want to take a quick break to summarize what we just read so far. Here we have this task where the president is trying to get a letter to an individual by the name of Garcia. And Rohan was selected to do this task. And without asking any questions, he got the job done. And what Hubbard is trying to emphasize is how rare it is for an individual to simply carry out a task without a thousand questions. So let's get to the second half of this essay. You, reader, put this matter to the test. You're sitting now in your office. Six clerks are within your call. Summon anyone and make this request. Please look in the encyclopedia and make a brief memorandum for me concerning the life of Correggio. Will the clerk quietly say, yes, sir, and go do the task? On your life, he will not. He will look at you out of a fishy eye and ask one or more of the following questions. Who was he? Which encyclopedia? Where is the encyclopedia? Was I hired for that? Don't you mean Bismarck? What's the matter with Charlie doing it? Is he dead? Is there any hurry? Shan't I bring you the book and let you look it up yourself? What do you want to know this for? And I will lay you ten to one that after you have answered the questions and explained how to find the information and why you want it, the clerk will go off and get one of the two other clerks to help him find Garcia and then come back and tell you there's no such man. Of course, I may lose my bet, but according to the law of average, I will not. This is an example from 1899 about how hard it is to find people who are commanded to do a task and get the job done. And this is exactly what the children of Israel did to Moses. That because they had reluctance in their hearts, they were refusing to carry out the straightforward commandment to go and sacrifice a heifer. That instead they made numerous excuses and showed not only their incompetence, 
but their lack of trust in God and their reluctance in belief. When God commands the believers to do something, our obligation needs to be to carry out that task to the best of our ability. If instead we are looking for more clarification, it means that we either are questioning God's omniscience and perfection or that deep down we just don't want to carry out the task and thus looking to make excuses. This is different than blind obedience. Once you know that the commandment is from God, these people validated for themselves that Moses is a messenger of God and that God is informing Moses to command them to do a certain task. This is different than individuals who need assurances or lack the courage to carry out the task that they are commanded to do. Take the example of Moses. When God commanded him to go to Pharaoh, he didn't have to ask, who is Pharaoh? What do you mean by let the children of Israel go? Or any other excuse to get out of the situation. Instead, he asked God for support and strength to be able to accomplish this task that God set out for him. This is not the same as knowing what God expects from us, having the ability to carry it out, yet looking for an excuse not to do it. We see this example in the Quran when the believers were commanded to fight and the contrast between the weak believers who wanted to fight but lacked the courage or the means to those that had the means but only wanted to flee. In Surah 9 verse 88 through 93 we read, As for the messenger and those who believed with him, they eagerly strive with their money and their lives. These have deserved all the good things. They are the winners. God has prepared for them gardens with flowing streams wherein they abide forever. This is the greatest triumph. The Arabs made up excuses. They came to you seeking permission to stay behind. This is indicative of their rejection of God and His Messenger. They stay behind. Indeed, those who disbelieve among them have incurred a painful retribution. So God is calling out these individuals, these Arabs who had the means, who had the, the resources to go and fight, to eagerly strive in the cause of God. Now contrast this with the other group of people that it continues in Surah 9 verse 91. It says, not to be blamed are those who are weak or ill or do not find anything to offer so long as they remain devoted to God and His Messenger. The righteous among them shall not be blamed. God is forgiver, most merciful. Also excuse are those who come to you wishing to be included with you, but you tell them, I do not have anything to carry you on. They then turn back with tears in their eyes, genuinely saddened that they could not afford to contribute. The blame is on those who ask your permission to stay behind, even though they have no excuse. They have chosen to be with the sedentary. Consequently, God has sealed their hearts and thus they do not attain any knowledge. So the takeaway from this is that when God gives us a commandment to do something, we know that God is omniscient, all-knowing, that God does not make a mistake or forget. Therefore, God gave us all the information we need to carry out that act. And the only thing that's left is our own will. Are we exposed as reluctant believers? Or are we courageous and strive in the cause of God and do our utmost to carry out that act to the best of our ability without objection? So what does any of this have to do with how we perform the Salat? Notice, nowhere in the Quran does it state how to perform the Salat. 
Even for those who typically make the argument that this is why we need hadith, there is no hadith that states the exact instructions on how to perform salat. So what are we to make of this? God commands the followers of the Quran, including Muhammad, to follow the religion of Abraham, Milat Ibrahim. This is specifically in regards to the ritualistic practices of Abraham. In Surah 16, verse 123, we read, Then we inspired you, Muhammad, to follow the religion of Abraham, Milat Ibrahim, the monotheist. He never was an idol worshiper. All practices of submission, Islam, came from Abraham, including Hajj, Salat, Zakat, Siam, fasting. Additionally, we never see Noah, who preceded Abraham, performing the Salat. But we do see that all the prophets since Abraham performed these rituals, including Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Jesus, Moses, Aaron, and the children of Israel. Throughout the Quran, we will see all these individuals perform the Salat. Not only that, but we see that the idol worshippers of the Quraysh even performed the Salat at the time of Muhammad. Therefore, God did not need to inform Muhammad how to perform the Salat. He already knew how to do it. But if you consult many Quranists, they come up with weird, archaic understandings to what the Salat is. While some claim that the Salat means to follow closely, they have no unified understanding to what that even means, or others who attempt to cobble together miscellaneous steps based on various verses of the Quran to decipher how to perform the Salat that are all over the map. The problem with these kinds of approaches is that trying to figure out the instructions to how to perform the Salat from the Quran alone is like trying to figure out how to slaughter a heifer from the Quran alone. God did not need to explain how to slaughter an animal because this process is already well understood. People who are altering the Salat with these kinds of understandings are not only losing out on one of the greatest blessings that God bestowed upon the human race, but also implying that God is not omniscient or that he forgot or made a mistake by not providing these details in the Quran or when he gave us this commandment to perform our Salat. In my opinion, the Quranists today who are debating what the meaning of Salat is are behaving worse than the children of Israel who were commanded to sacrifice a heifer. This would be like those children of Israel not asking which heifer, but instead if they had the hubris to ask, but how do we slaughter a heifer? Or what is the meaning of slaughter? That is what it's like when the Quranists are asking these fundamental questions, but what is Salat? But based on the profound lesson of the heifer, the motivation for the people who are twisting the Salat is more likely that they just don't want to perform the act. I heard from numerous people the comment that they found it degrading to have to put their forehead on the ground, that they considered this a barbaric pagan ritual. Others just seemed lazy that the fact of committing themselves for a few minutes five times a day did not seem like something they wanted to do and therefore created this excuse to almost have a clear conscience about neglecting such a clear commandment in the Quran. In Surah 2 verse 13 it reads, When they are told, Believe like the people who believe, they say, Shall we believe like the fools who believed? In fact, it is they who are fools, but they do not know. So all that said, 
How do we perform the Salat based on the Quran alone? When God gives us a commandment and doesn't provide the details, it means we have all the information we already need to carry out that act. No different than when God told the children of Israel to sacrifice a heifer, they had all the information they needed. Any questions they were asking was merely just creating excuses. So this means that the Salat was already in practice since the time of Abraham. That this was not something that God needed to explain to the people what to do, how to do it. When God told them to perform the Salat, they simply went and observed how is it done and they carried it out. And this is where the Quran comes into play. The Quran is our source, our guide, our religious law that we use to filter all the information, all our religious practices through. That if we find something that contradicts the Quran, we know that it is not from God and we eliminate it. And the Salat is no different. To know how to perform the Salat, it's very simple. Go and see how the majority of Muslims are currently doing their Salat and filter all the impurities out using the Quran alone. So we see there is universal conformity that there's five Salats, that the number of units for each Salat is the same, that you have two for the dawn, four for noon, four for afternoon, three for sunset, and four for the night prayer, that making intentions before doing the Salat, that saying Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest, when transitioning from each step in the Salat, that the Fatiha is the start of each unit within the Salat, that we say, Subhan Rabbi Glory be to my Lord most great when we're bowing. Or saying, Sami Allahu Laman Hamada, God hears from whoever praises Him when going from bowing to standing. And Subhan Rabbi Allah, when we do the prostration, sujood, and that we say the Shahada at the end of the second unit and at the last unit of the Salat. And we only mention God's name, Ashadwan la la lillallah, or any other rendition that only mentions God's name. And that finally, when we're done with our salat, we simply look to the right and the left and we say, Assalamu alaikum. And that completes our salat. That is all we need. Now, what are the common things that people have added to the salat that we can tell from the Quran do not belong? The most common aspect is that they mention other names beside God. God throughout the Quran tells us that the religion is, should be devoted 100% to God alone. That mentioning any other name beside God constitutes a form of idol worship. In Surah 72 verse 18 it reads, The places of worship belong to God. Do not call on anyone else beside God. In Surah 39 verse 3 we read, Absolutely, the religion shall be devoted to God alone. Those who set up idols beside him say we idolize them only to bring us closer to God, for they are in a better position. God will judge them regarding their disputes. God does not guide such liars, disbelievers. Again, we're seeing this consistent theme that the religion needs to be dedicated to God alone, that we do not mention any other name during our ritual practices of any human beings, saints, angels, anyone, that besides God. In Surah 39, verse 45, it reads, When God alone is mentioned, the hearts of those who do not believe in the hereafter shrink with aversion. But when others are mentioned beside Him, they become satisfied. We need to be satisfied with the mentioning of God alone during our Salat.
Another innovation that has crept into the Salat is the recitation of other surahs in the Quran other than that of just the Fatiha. There are numerous issues with this, that yes, we read the Quran, but our Salat is to be dedicated to God alone. When we read any other surah in the Quran, one of two things happen. One, we're either mentioning other names beside God, irrespective if they're mentioned in the Quran. But secondly, is that the Fatiha is the only surah in the entire Quran where it is a communication from the human being to God. In every other surah of the Quran, God is talking to the human being. That's why individuals who read Ikhlas, Falak, Nas, one of the shorter surahs at the end of the Quran, what they say is that in their Salat, when they're do, reciting these verses, they're saying Ghul, they're saying Say. Does that make sense? That when you're having a direct communication with God, that you're telling God to say, Qul wallahu ahad, Allahu samad. It doesn't make sense. Why would we be telling God to say this when we're having the communication with God? This is because, again, every other surah in the Quran is a revelation from God to the human being. While the Fatiha is the words that God has given us that we use to communicate from us to God. The worst of the innovations that has crept into the Salat is the alteration of the Shahada to mention the names of Muhammad or Ibrahim or anyone else beside God is absolutely blasphemous. Surah 3 verse 18, it reads, God bears witness that there is no God except He, and so do the angels and those who possess knowledge. Truthfully and equitably, He is the absolute God. There is no God but He, the Almighty, most wise. The first commandment, the Shahada, has been in existence even before the human being was created. And this is the Shahada of God, the angels, and the knowledgeable. To all of a sudden add another human being's name next to that of God's is utter blasphemy. Our Salat, again, must be 100% dedicated to God alone. So from this alone, we know exactly how to perform our Salat. We simply go and observe how is it currently done and we use the Quran as the filter to eliminate whatever pollution has entered into the Salat to get it back to its pristine form. And despite this, I know there are going to be a number of Quranists and followers of Hadith that are going to be angry at what I'm saying and try to construct verses from the Quran or Hadith to contradict the simple fact that when God told us to perform the Salat, that it's very straightforward. We don't need to go and reinterpret what does it mean to do Salat. We don't need to go and consult with Hadith and Sunnah to see how is the Salat performed. That this is something that has been in existence since the time of Abraham that God has preserved. That when God tells us to do a commandment without the details, that it means we have all the information we need to carry through with that task. That despite this, there's going to be individuals who are going to be angry. They're going to object. And God has already given the best rebuttal to this argument. In Surah 18 verse 54 it reads, We have cited in this Quran every kind of example, but the human being is the most argumentative creature. Since God did not provide the details of how to perform the Salat, 
and provided these verses as if we should already know what they are, then the answer should be obvious and no different than when God commanded the children of Israel to sacrifice a heifer. So let's not fall in the same mistake. Let's learn this valuable lesson that God has placed for us immediately when we start reading the Quran and God willing, fulfill this crucial aspect of our religion. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at QuranTalk at gmail.com. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, please download the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store where we did a word-by-word literal translation of the Quran so you can understand the Arabic Quran, the root meanings, the derivative meanings, and get a deeper appreciation of the Word of God. And if you guys like the podcast, please leave us a review, share it with others, and until next time, Peace and God bless.